Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Strike and Ellicott Files, an unofficial podcast dedicated to all things Cormoran Strike and Robin Ellicott, as written by Robert Galbraith. My name is Kenz. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Pools. And today we'll be continuing our reread of The Ink Black Heart, this time joined by a familiar voice. In this episode, Paula will be helping us cover chapters 31 through 33 of part two. Hi, Paula. Hello. Hi, Paula. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, we're happy to have you back. It's nice to get invited back. (laughs) (laughs) It's nice to have guests because we're all on our best behavior when guests are here. You know, we've dressed up, we've put on bras, pants. Oh, I'm disappointed. (laughs) We can try to be on bad behavior if you want. Okay. Yeah, please. Please be aware, as always, that our discussion of the Ink Black Heart will occasionally reference the ending of this book, as well as the rest of the books in the series. But before we get into our chapter discussion today, we are going to go over another one of the Q&A questions. And this one is, what role does sickness play in the novel? So I think sickness is probably the overarching theme of the whole book, in many different ways. Sickness in lots of different senses, on the most prosaic level, strike in this book really does reach a kind of reckoning with his own with his own body you know he's a disabled man he's he's an amputee and he hasn't been looking after himself and he's he eats fast food and he's overweight and he knows this and he makes vague resolutions and we've seen this throughout the series and he never keeps any of them and in this book he really does sort of hit a brick wall i cannot continue doing this job unless i make some changes so that's very important to the book, and it's important to the plot that Strike at times is incapacitated. But there's sickness in lots of other different senses. Spoony culture, which is almost a, where people's identity really becomes enmeshed with their illnesses, mental or physical. And then there's um, anime, which in itself is a kind of malaise, a kind of societal sickness where people feel very disconnected, isolated, and don't feel connected to social norms or um, ethical norms which we would see on in the internet. I mean, the, not all of the internet, of course, because people can make beautiful friendships online and, and it can be a very, I, I think, positive space. But it, I think it's also undeniable that in the virtual world, you do see um, the consequences of people feeling alienated and isolated and finding less healthy ways of dealing with that. I also see sickness working as an excuse within the book, particularly with Inigo, is that how we pronounce his name? I call him like Inigo Montoya. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but this Inigo's an asshole. Yeah, we don't oh, like this one. To say the least. No. Yeah. So <laughs> I see the sickness working with him because he, you know, he's a bitter man because of his chronic illness. Yeah. And he uses it as an excuse to abuse his family. Kea seems to use illness as an excuse to escape strikes questioning, etc. And this is not to say that their illnesses are not legitimate. It's just that they use them to their advantage, even weaponizing them at times. And then on the contrary, if we're considering disability and illness within this context, Vicus is an example of someone who does not use his illness as an excuse. It does not prevent him from being successful in his work, making ma- major contributions in his field. And I although none of us is very fond of him, Ryan Murphy <laughs> is an example of someone with a chronic disease of alcoholism who has overcome his circumstances and not let it keep him from a successful career. Some of us are quite fond of Ryan Murphy. Some of us like are him. Are we? 
Some of us are kind of rooting for him. I'm rooting for him to go away. away. I'll root for him away. Yeah. Complicated feelings towards Ryan Murphy. I will, if anybody starts shitting on Ryan Murphy, I'm going to come to his defense, actually. I'll lead the Ryan Murphy defense squad. You and me, the Ryan defense squad. There's nothing wrong with him. I just want him to go away. I think he'll be useful. He'll be a good stepping stone for Robin to ease herself back into relationships. And that will make her all the more ready for strike later on. It was interesting what you said, Paula, about weaponizing their illness or weaponizing Mm -hmm. disability. Are there times when Strike uses his leg this way to throw people off to make them uncomfortable? Definitely. One of the most interesting things is seeing how different people react or engage with their illness. But the thing that I find the most fascinating and kind of continuing something we talked about in our last episode is Strike's lack of response to all of these other people's reaction to their own mm-hmm. disabilities or illnesses because he almost never thinks about himself when observing these other people. Yeah, They're not there in his thoughts as if he's completely ignoring it. In fact, like you were just saying, Pools, the only time I can remember offhand that he reflects and thinks that he's similar is when it has to do with dishonesty. It's when he's interviewing Kia and he thinks that if she's truly ill, she's exaggerating her symptoms to gain his sympathy, just like he had done in the previous chapter with her mother and right. showing her his leg. Mm-hmm. He does the same thing at the end of Lethal White with Kinvara. He guilts her into letting them into her sitting room to sit down because his leg is in so much pain. Oh, right. Yeah. He He's is a little tricky pain. boy. He is, he is in the pain truth. at that he point. He is in pain. Yeah. But... but this time he wasn't. Mm-hmm. I think the point of the illnesses being this overarching theme, as Joe says, is to highlight Strike's health. So physically, mentally, emotionally, mm-hmm. and the fact that he is ignoring it. His flaws are just really put on display in this book more so than before. We've known about these things, but they're just really emphasized, probably because this is a watershed turning point for him. But it's really mm-hmm. interesting to see how the theme of illness ties in with strike's journey by showing such a contrast yeah it is what struck me about this book and illness was also the i think you you basically said this what was interesting to me is that it also showed so many different ways of dealing with coping with reacting to illness it covered the whole range of yeah. what happens when there is an illness or a disability but it, i feel like what was left open the question at the end of the novel was how do we cope with react to the societal illness the enemy and mm-hmm. misogyny also as a sickness in society there was no conclusion came to as to how to address that how to co other than just imprisoning the symptom but i feel like imprisoning him imprisoning the happening it's just treating the symptoms well how do you well that's why i was asking the question because <laughs> <laughs> there's no answer i don't know if you can you yeah i don't know before we go to the chapters though can we talk about the adaptation how great it is so far oh, so yeah. we're recording this episode a week early so at this point only the first episode has aired episode two will be on tomorrow but I'm, mm-hmm. I'm loving it. Are you guys loving it? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yes. I, I think it's the best adaptation so far. So do I. I agree. I was just so excited to see Bill and Sue in that opening shot. <laughs> yes. I felt like, you know, on Elf when Buddy's like, I know him about Santa. <laughs> I felt like that was me. I was like, those are my friends. I know them. <laughs> I, that Cute. was so neat. And you could hear Bill. I think he said, you all right? Or something like that when he sat down. Yeah. Wow. I'm going to have to listen with headphones next time. In case you want to see where they are, it's like right in the opening shot, right when Strike's coming out of the victory, right? They're the two people that are on the end on the left side. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. Bill's sitting down and Sue's right across from him. It made me laugh so much. Sorry, Sue. 
it's just she had the biggest smile on her face and I was just like knowing <laughs> Sue she's mm-hmm. so happy at that moment it would just it made me smile if you could pick a scene from Ink Black Heart to be an extra in in the adaptation which scene oh. would you pick I have my answer hold on well I have to think was it where Strike meets the happening and he ends up punching him oh yeah yeah i, I would be a good see one. that happen although you'd have to be in the men's washroom <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah maybe just move the I punch could be somewhere an attendant else or something i think maybe comic-con would be fun oh my I god was i was gonna yeah. say comic-con yeah. my answer is i want to be at robin's interview with yasmin at the starbucks and i want to be the person <laughs> who bumps into yasmin and spills coffee on her <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and then it doesn't apologize, just walks off. I feel like it would be really cathartic for me. I mean, that's why they hire extras, right? For their own personal catharsis. I think so. Mm. Yeah. May I say that one of my favorite things about this adaptation is the casting. Everything from how they add the diversity in, you know, mm-hmm. with Kim and Max, and how there's such a great casting with the younger and the older characters. I mean, they oh, really are believable, you know, yeah. they resemble each other. As well as I love the casting of Uncle Ted, because to me, he looks like an older Cormoran strike from the book. You know, he's how Cormoran is described in the book as looking. I mean, we all have to admit we love Tom Burke, but he does not look like the Cormoran strike in the book, which is fine. You know, I'm, I'm cool with that. But I just like it that Uncle Ted kind of looks like what I would have thought strike would have looked like as an older man, because in the book, he's even described as looking like his uncle ted Mm -hmm. as well as the younger strike i think they did an excellent job casting that kid he was very believable as that kid's adorable that kid's very cute so anyway that's one thing i just loved about this adaptation and i also loved how they did just a fine job of moving things around you know moving scenes around combining stuff changing it and it did not detract at all from the story in some ways maybe it even made it more concise yeah in that first episode there's a lot moved around but it felt so the flow felt so natural the pace is quick it's not a slow meandering story in that first episode it's like move, move, move. it's exciting but it has to be for tv yeah and it's right. the p- quick pacing, I think, is a way to make a cold case seem more exciting because you have that, mm-hmm. that energy, you know? Exactly. I mean, they even added stuff that was just so great. Like when Robin is talking to Strike about the astrology and she mm-hmm. comments that you can be insane and right at the same time. Yeah, that was a good says, line. That sounds like something you put on a fridge magnet. I think mm-hmm. someone needs to make that and put it on a fridge <laughs> magnet. Yeah. I want it on a magnet. But that was brilliant. Yeah. A couple highlights for me. The smiles when they first see each other are ridiculously cute. Robin's little shrug. Yeah. Her her little shoulder shrug. The music. It was very romantic. Oh my gosh. The music has been so good. I also loved seeing that they added a bit of Margot's personality and they showed how she was funny. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad they included her making jokes because we know from Una in the book that she is really funny and we get to see that. That was a great attention to detail. Yeah. But I think I'm giving my favorite moments for the first episode to Pat. I might yes. be biased because I just love her. But that part where she's, she asks him, would a thanks kill you? The way he points at her and says, thank you, Pat. It's so <laughs> well done. It's so funny. It's just, it's the perfect amount of comical antagonism. It's really good. It yep. is. I love how Robin defends her at every turn. Yep. She's great at her job. Yep. She's efficient. And he's like, yeah, but you were efficient, but I didn't want to throw you out the window. <laughs> 
speaking of Una, okay, I love Una. And I love her quote that the dead never really disappear, not while they're still loved. And that to me was an improvement on the quote in the book. Because she just basically is just saying, yeah, you know, the dead never disappear. But she didn't say that part about how not while they're still loved. And I thought that was just such a beautiful quote. Another thing about Una is, I'm sorry, but I mean, I understand why she got the portrait or the painting of Margot. Yeah. But why would she hang it in her bedroom? Her bedroom. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe she has kids, grandkids or something. She doesn't want it out. Yeah. Well, I'd put it in the back of the closet. I mean, I wouldn't want to be looking at it. But anyway, (laughs) that's just me. I don't want to see my best friend naked. Much less like every day when you wake up. Yeah. We were actually talking about the adaptation in our Twitter chat yesterday. And I asked the Lady Beatrice if I could read her comment today on the podcast because I just thought she nailed it. It's a little long, so bear with me, but it's worth it. I'll tell you what I loved about it so much after I read it. So she said, I watched the first episode of Troubled Blood, and I have to say I'm more and more impressed by the adaptation each time I watch it. It's not strictly faithful to the text, but remarkable in how it sums up pages and pages in a short time. The first 15 minutes tells us so much about Strike's view of love. After the case introduction, Strike helps Ted cook the family meal. We often see Strike eat, but rarely cook, but here he does so for family. He's tender and yet strong for both Ted and Joan, somehow giving both of them what they need, even though that's different for each, all while taking in devastating news. The walk to the ferry with Lucy bothered me at first because Lucy's accompaniment seemed unnecessary, but now I'm appreciating it. Lucy needs someone to rail out, and her strong older brother gives her that opportunity. As we see later, Cormoran's role is always to be strong when people he loves do painful things, like Leela leaving him to see if she can make it work with an unnamed boyfriend. But Lucy pours her frustration into criticizing Strike's choices. He offers a drink to spend time with her alone, but she implies he might be an alcoholic. He points out her most overdramatic declarations calmly, and she complains he chose Leda over Joan, an unfair and impossible choice. The facial expressions here from Tom Burke, rolling his eyes with humor, showing this is an old argument between them, and one Strike tries not to take personally despite its power to sting. Lucy says... At least I ended up with someone, meaning Joan, and jumps right to the idea of Strike marrying Robin. She's afraid Strike will never end up with someone and thinks he should take a chance with Robin. Lucy declares Lita didn't love anyone except herself. The implication is that she didn't love either of her children, not Lucy who replaced her with Joan and not Cormoran who stayed loyal. Book readers know Cormoran repeated that pattern with Charlotte staying loyal while she both abused and left him multiple times. Lucy is suggesting that Robin is the antidote. When Lucy demands to know one reason why not, Strike has to pause. It seems there is a reason he has thought about, and we see that by his facial expression. The heartbreaking admission that he would lose it all tells us that he knows he hasn't learned how to love without it becoming a disaster. He's been choosing between Leda and Joan, has been harangued by his sister, been abused by Charlotte, all while attempting to do his best at love. How can we blame him for not wanting to lose his friend and business partner? Lucy wants to make her criticism better by declaring she loves him, which, though true, nevertheless emphasizes the tie between pain and love Strike has experienced. Strike takes the ferry, a ride he tells Ted reminds me of being a kid, while he has a nostalgic smile on his face, but the memories we are witnessing are heartbreaking as Joan and Lita argue over what the kids need. He is transported from his part-time hometown to where Robin waits for him with a smile to greet him. 
His arrival brings the first smile to his face since he spoke on the phone to her. She has kindly brought him biscuits, but he politely refuses. Robin knows him best, despite Lucy's recent declaration. And she correctly interprets that the situation with Joan is indeed dire. She changes the subject, giving Strike the space to refocus and gain his footing in the world away from his family tragedy. Robin gives him a safe space and quiet support that others have not. I'm impressed by the skill writer Tom Edge has shown in delivering what we have learned about Strike over thousands of pages in these first few minutes. Oh, that's beautiful. I thought so too. Yeah, that's great. This person should be doing the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Way smarter than me. (laughs) I know. Thank you, Lady Beatrice, for letting me know that. I just think she explained exactly what I think so many people miss about adaptations and how they show the themes and emotions and the messages Mm -hmm. of the books while also having to make changes they need to make to make good TV. Mm -hmm. I just thought it was great and showed a real understanding of what I think they've accomplished with the adaptations. I mean, they're very faithful to everything, really, ultimately, even though they make a few changes here and there. I mean, they obviously have to condense things, but that's what I think is so impressive, especially with this Especially with Trouble Blood. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, we'll have to discuss the other episodes probably on our next recording. I think by the next time they should all be out. So chapter 31 there are a bunch of in-game conversations in Drek's game about the happenings presence in the game, and then they also discuss Anime's plans for Comic-Con, which is still a prediction that I am astounded that you got right, Pools. <laughs> I know. I think it's one of my greatest successes. All right, the epigraph from this chapter. The rat is the concisest tenant. He pays no rent, repudiates the obligation on schemes intent. And that is from The Rat by Emily Dickinson. So my initial reaction was that this was about Lord Jack and Val Pachora because we see in this chapter that Morehouse wants them out. He says so out in the open. They're in a sense rats because they're only there to spy for the happening. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I think maybe it's actually about Morehouse from Anime's perspective. So he's become oh. a rat. He's refusing the obligation to Anime and not going along with his schemes. Yeah. So I think this might be one from Anime's perspective. I love that interpretation. That's better than I had. That's great. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Yeah, all I had was schemers. A whole bunch of rats. Yeah, there mm-hmm. are a bunch of rats. <laughs> yeah, a little <laughs> scheming in here. Trying to find them, trying to ban them. It's not going to work. Uh, yeah, that's a way better interpretation than I had. You win this round. So there's a lot that's happening in this chapter. Yes, so lots much. of cross current. My brain felt tied in knots when I was trying to make the notes for this because there's so much going on. So this chapter opens with Anime wanting to have a group meeting with all the mods to tell everyone to go to Comic-Con with their Drex game shirts as a message to Maverick and Grant Ludwell. <laughs> you know, on the one hand, if this was all he was doing, if it was just fans making a statement, it's not that bad. Yeah. yeah. I don't know how effective it would be. Yeah. I laughed at him calling this terrorizing because he says we're going to terrorize them, meaning we're going to show up to Comic-Con in our t-shirts. And I'm <laughs> like, enemy, you're a murderer. That's the best you can do? That's the best we can do for terrorizing? That's disappointing. <laughs> Come on. I was hoping for something a little more devious. Yeah, but it makes me think that he's got other motives. Oh, yeah. I think his whole plan to kill Oliver Peach is in full swing here. It's a perfect place to get everyone together and to have an excuse to be wearing a disguise. I too would commit a murder at Comic-Con if I was going (laughs) to choose a murder. There's so many people. There's so many germs. There's so much DNA flying everywhere. You're not going to get caught. Uh, That's exactly what a murderer who thinks they won't get caught will say. We'll keep score and we'll see. We'll put strike on the job 
<laughs> see if he catches you. Strike's never going to Comic Con again. It's like, <laughs> nope, that's it. Make Barkley go. What would Barkley dress up as if he went to Comic Con? I love the idea of Strike making him dress up as Robin, his Batman. <laughs> you just want Strike wearing Batman. Yeah, I wanted Strike to be Batman. But I guess yeah, he, he could dress him up as Princess Leia. Barkley would make a funny Princess Leia. Come on. I mean, what else other than Star Wars? I'd want to come up with a group costume for the whole agency. That would be a great listener question. <laughs> what are we sending the agency to Comic-Con dressed as, guys? Let us know. All together. Can we just not say Star Wars? We've already done it. All right, we've done Star Wars. Pick a different franchise. Yeah. I guess Sherlock Holmes would be too on the nose. Yeah, too obvious. Can Strike dress up as Columbo? They could each dress up as famous detectives. One of them could go as Magnum P.I., Miss Marple. Is Carmen Sandiego a detective? No, I think she was a criminal. Oh. She did crime. That won't work. Well, she can dress up as Carmen Sandiego and then Strike has to catch her. I think I had a fanfic planned about that. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Paula, this is what we meant about not being on good behavior. (laughs) Yeah. I say, God, that's going to turn X-rated pretty fast. Yeah, it already it did in my mind. It's okay. Going back to Oliver Peach, though, I can see why Anime is already putting this planet's motion to kill him, right? Because yeah. he's given him information about how to buy things untraceably online. So he has evidence against oh. Anime. And he's openly saying it in the mod chat that he used it to buy a machete and a taser. So we know Anime wants this guy gone. He is a threat. He's also a threat because he's not smart. He's no, not he's not smart. smart. He's no, so dumb. All. I wish that all Nazis were this dumb. But it almost makes me not empathize with Lord Drek because he's terrible. But it <laughs> has to be frustrating for Lord Drek to have a brother who's that dumb. Like he's the Nutley of the Havening. <laughs> oh my God, he is. <laughs> Ouch. He's the yeah. Nutley mm-hmm. of the Havening. That it just drives cold. me crazy how dumb he is. You know what I like in this first mod conversation? Say terrible. Sorry. What are you I just say? had a terrible mean thought. It's not nice. I was just wondering how much the I brain injury actually changed it. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Well, when there's nothing there to injure. Uh, that's a good point. I'm so glad you said that. <laughs> Me too. I love it when Fiendy defends Worm. When Fiendy says, piss off and leave Worm alone, Valpatra. I like it because I had a thought. I had a thought about Rachel and Zoe, Fiendian Worm. Mm -hmm. They're very close in age. And I'm wondering if maybe these two girls could bond and become friends after everything comes out at the end of the book. Because they have a lot of shared trauma from this whole anime thing. They both genuinely love this game and they mourn Edie. I think that if they were able to be friends in real life and see each other for who they were, Zoe could benefit a bit from... (laughs) Rachel's backbone yeah and you know Rachel could have someone who genuinely cares about her who wants to be her friend who she's close Mm -hmm. to just an idea but that it's on my list of things I hope could happen you know what it's not totally out there because I would imagine that they would both have to testify yeah they could so they're both gonna have to meet at some point I would think yeah so yeah i liked fiendy defending worm i thought it was really sweet i want them to be friends and support each other yeah Let's put that on our that's happened list. Anyway, also notable here was the contrast between Hartella and Fiendi. Hartella's delusion. Josh must be doing so much better if he's tweeting. And then Fiendi's yeah. grip on reality. Someone's doing it for him, you dumbass. I, I might have paraphrased that. And Hartella is very embarrassing with three kisses at Lord Drek. 
get a grip sorry that's my hotel hate for the day well i mean she is really annoying in this chapter her statement that you just said about josh that he must be better if he's tweeting i find it frustrating because she's being willfully blind to the possibility of someone else tweeting for yeah him. you know it's not like he's been out spotted having a cup of coffee or something it's a tweet but on the other hand it's a little bit relatable because I can understand feeling so guilty that you need to spin it oh, and believe that mm. the best is true. So I kind of understand why she's doing this. That makes sense to me. I thought she was just an idiot. It's more hopeful <laughs> than anything else, maybe. It's hopeful because she wants to appease her own guilt. Yeah. Okay. That makes more sense to me. In our last episode, we talked a little bit about the case that Ilsa won with the vulnerable girl being taken advantage of. And I said that if I had been paying more attention, I would have suspected Zoe as being some sort of unwitting accomplice. And we joked that it would have been a red herring, but it fits Hartella. Well, Hartella's a grown-ass woman, not a 15-year-old. No, but I was having this kind of debate with myself about how much personal responsibility I think Hartella has, because on the one hand, she's being naive and gullible, makes herself a target to be used by the having an enemy but that doesn't mm. make her responsible for someone else's murderous action oh no but there is a connection because later in the chapter with katya she says almost exactly what ilsa says about her clients so she says she couldn't believe that a nice girl could get caught up with a terrorist group and be used like that so i think that oh. there is a reflection between hartella and ilsa's case it's not so much a clue or anything hidden. It's just a parallel. Yeah, okay, I can see that. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the side chat with Lord Drek and Val Pachora. There's a couple of them, but basically yes. Lord Drek is just yelling at his brother for being an idiot. Deservedly so. I wonder how much Anime said to Val Pachora, how much he implied to him, because he does brag about being the killer in the game. So mm -hmm. on the side, you know, is he telling Val Pachora a little bit more? He knows that he's not going to condemn his actions and he's probably planning on killing him anyway so i'm just curious what their side conversations were like that's interesting because i could totally see anime bragging more than he would to anyone else because yeah. again he knows that valpatura is not long for this earth and also would fill his ego with oh great job not exactly I can't believe you're saying this yeah. Yes, he'd get his ego stroked. Mm -hmm. While Valpcor is being yelled at, Lord Drek says that Algizard isn't hard to see through the name on Twitter. And that made me yeah. laugh because Algizard is what leads Strike to the real life identity of Thurisaz in a later chapter. Because oh, Algizard was yeah. engaging with Anomi on Twitter. Yeah. So yeah, Strike saw through it. Can we jump to Morehouse? Yeah. At this point, he's just so fed up with Anomi. And Morehouse is easily one of the most likable characters in this chapter. I guess the only competition is Fiendy. That kind of makes yeah. me sad because they're both so likable and yet they had this falling out and they're not friends anymore. And they yeah. never got a chance to make up. Oh. That makes me sad. That Sorry. makes me sad too. I was just going to be so happy that Morehouse said fuck you to Anami in person and then jumped into the main chat to say no you can't finish the conversation we're having this conversation Lord Drek's response I think is smart on his part you know he yeah. tries to play it very cool he's setting himself up as the better person mm -hmm. the noble martyr cartel over here falling for it completely but it it feels so transparently not 
the way he usually is. You're right. This yeah. is the only time we see him like this. It's pretty obvious. But yeah, it's a smart strategy. Smarter than Vile Pachoras, which is... We didn't even know what the happening was until Anime explained oh, it. Yeah. He's up on all that dark web. He, we yeah. think he used Bitcoin. And I'm like, Vile Pachora, that's not smart. Again, you kind of got to feel for Lord Drek just a tiny bit. <laughs> <laughs> he must have been rolling his eyes and face palming behind his computer screen oh, at this. Like, so oh, <laughs> dumbass. What are you doing? Vile Pachora needs a bell every time he starts <laughs> to type or something. Just stop it. Squeezy bottle. <laughs> no, a squeezy bottle yeah. like you do for spray cats. Bottle. Spray mm-hmm. water on him. Yeah, that's what he needs. That's better. Yeah. <laughs> Morehouse. In his confrontation with enemy, he says that he checked the logs and that Lord Drac and Val Pachora weren't online when Edie was killed, mm-hmm. which is smart. But it makes me wonder, did he check and see that Anomi also oh, I was not online? I bet he did. And is that feeding into his suspicions a little bit? Yeah. That's why later in the chapter, he's like... He tells Paper White, I'm thinking that maybe he did it. Yeah. You know what else I liked about Morehouse? is when Hartella tries to do a private chat with him. (laughs) (laughs) It made me laugh because she tries to tell him, Lord Drake can't be the happening because she happens to know that he's black. And Morehouse just goes completely silent. He doesn't even join the private channel that she invites him to. (laughs) He just ignores the invitation completely. Yeah. She invites him. She talks into the void. She leaves, private channel closes. He never even joins it. <laughs> Talks into the void. <laughs> he has no time for Artella. It makes me respect him. It makes me admire <laughs> him. I want to give him some applause. I think it's a power move. Um, he's going places. Well, he would have been going places. Oh, ooh, right to the heart. I have to say, towards the end of this chapter, I kind of felt bad for Hartella. Just the way Anime runs all over her and makes her, you know, work the night shift. It was funny. (laughs) It makes me feel bad. I think the reason I felt bad is because young me, Mm -hmm. I can relate to not knowing how to stand up for yourself and being taken over by a larger personality. Okay. So I kind of empathize with her on that a little bit. I guess so. Yeah, I, I can see that. Is it painful for you to say yes? It is. I've just been I like, this is a video painful. game and you're not paying me? I'm just going to go. Okay. Well, it kind of shows how much control he has yeah. over all of them and how serious it they does. take it. It is abnormally serious for a video game. I think Anomi is really, really good at establishing control like this over people. Let's go to Morehouse's private chat with Paperwhite. Oh, yeah. I just want to jump in the book and tell him to stop talking. <laughs> he gives Gus so much information. We've already talked about that he's starting to believe that Anomi did it. And he's tempted to tell Anomi's identity to Paperwhite, which tells Gus a lot. Mm-hmm. I think that's why he's so worried yeah. that he's talking to Rachel still. Absolutely. I agree. Yeah. And I think that's a clue that Anime and Paperwhite are the same person because there's that really weird message from Anime where he's super jealous about the possibility of Morehouse talking to Fiendy One. And then we see Paperwhite ask the same question. Mm-hmm. At first, I just bought Paperwhite's reason, but I think it's just really Gus's second attempt at finding out. And I think that Gus cleverly drives another wedge in between Morehouse and Fiendy. He deliberately makes Morehouse think that Fiendy told Paperwhite about his disability. I didn't even pick that up, but you're absolutely right. That's why he does that. I was wondering, why does Paperwhite or Gus 
bring mm-hmm. up the fact that Morehouse is disabled if he knows how Morehouse is going to react to it. That's exactly why. And we know because in the interview with Rachel, we find out that the first time Morehouse had talked to her in like a year was when he messaged her upset and accusing her of telling Paperwhite about his disability. That was right after this chapter, presumably, even though we don't get to see it. Yeah. Why do we think that this is his reaction? To me, in his normal life, he seems so accomplished and well-liked. It strikes Mm -hmm. me as a little surprising that he would be so upset by this. I think that Morehouse's insecurity, it's not in the professional intellectual realm. I think that his disability causes him a very specific social romantic insecurity his way of dealing with it has been to dissociate sort of to create this entirely separate persona where he doesn't have to deal with that insecurity right Mm -hmm. he doesn't have to deal with the challenges of trying to connect with people in real life he's got this nice bubble and having that popped is really painful to him because that's the only place he feels secure in that way i think you're absolutely right it hit his button and it hit it and he went off to get upset with me which was Gus's goal the whole time. All right, so chapter 32. In this chapter, Robin and Strike head to the Upcott's place, and Strike reads Robin's information about the Brotherhood of Ultima Thule. And the epigraph, and all our observations ran on art and letters, life and man. Proudly we sat, we two on high, throned in our objectivity, scarce friends, not lovers, each averse, but sexless, safe philosophers. And that's Philosophy by Amy Levy. Mm. Uh, I love this one. Yeah. Well, it's hilarious. It's full of irony. We're not mm. lovers. We're just friends. Totally sexless. We're just talking <laughs> about our observations over here. Nothing to see here, folks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's one of the funnier ones for me. Yeah, it is. There's an article that we can link to from The Guardian by Carol Rummins. I read that one too. We Googled the same thing. We Googled the same thing. There's a part of the article that specifically mentions this passage, the scarce friends, not lovers. And it says that it opposes the erotic nature of the friendship that the two people in this poem are trying to hide, Mm -hmm. which is hilarious. It is. And then a little later in the article, it references another part and says, coded by the abstract noun, meaning love of wisdom, is a relationship that's the reverse of sexless and safe. This is the delicious secret at the core of the irony. That is delicious. Sexy. It's a sexy passage for Strike and Robin. I really like it. It is. Oh, I love that. And I think that it works really well for this chapter because Strike and Robin here, they are kind of estranged personally. They're keeping it confined solely about you they're talking about the case right they're being professional detectives robin's being quite cool but it's very obvious to both of them yes because there is this undercurrent of feeling they're just refusing to acknowledge it or admit to it but what i love it was in this type of sort of intellectual i'm gonna call it intellectual even though it's like a detective connection it's a brain connection Mm -hmm. it's through this this shared interest that their bond first formed it is through this type of connection between their detective brains that their bond first formed and that connection is still incredibly valuable to them. So it seems to me that this epigraph is 
at the same time, both really ironic, but also sincere, just like the poem is. It's really suiting to them. This is my favorite one of these three. I think mine too. At the start of the chapter, we learn that it's been five days since Strike and Robin have last seen each other, and Robin realized that she's in love with him. They've only communicated by text and email, but you have to know that they both know that that's different, right? Oh, absolutely. It says that she normally would have called him, and I love the way this is described, to discuss the fresh detail of the case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think they both know that they're avoiding facing each other. They're very aware. Absolutely. This is just hammering home more of that theme of disconnection that Joe was talking about with this whole book. And it just made me think about other times in the book. And by the way, shout out to Anna Kiara for finding this for me because I couldn't remember how it was worded. And she came through for me. There's a few different parts in the book where Robin has something to tell Strike. And Strike already knows that she has something to tell him before she even says anything. Yeah, I can tell. I always love that. Yeah, and I feel like that's half the joy of them doing the work is being like, hey, guess what I just found out? They both love that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It just reminded me of that. This is just one of the times where I want to smack their heads together. Oh my God. (laughs) Preferably face-to-face, mouth-to-mouth together. (laughs) Mouth-to-mouth. I agree. Mouth-to-mouth. We find out that Strike had written an email to Robin telling her about taking on the Jagger Ross case. First of all, coward. Mm -hmm. Second of all, drafting that email would have taken me days of agonizing (laughs) over the phrasing. How do you even write that in an email? Strike must have way less anxiety about communicating over text than I do because it would be easier for me to just blurt that out and then run away. I I could not draft (laughs) You call him a coward. I know. I could not draft that kind of email though. And we know that he has to type one finger maybe that gives him time to think about the words maybe that's a strategy his hands are too big i just wanted to that's why well thanks for that (laughs) reminder i think our first count was at zero for this episode so i do what i can (laughs) thanks for bringing that up you're welcome but also that fresh detail that robin wanted to discuss was edie's phone being traced to hampstead heath which we've already discussed is significant with the dog and gus but I think it being placed here is a huge clue. And I'm going to jump ahead real quick because when Strike and Robin do meet in a few paragraphs, he tells her that Katja called and now wants to meet her at her home on Hampstead Heath. So within just a few paragraphs of each other, Hampstead Heath is listed as a fresh detail and then the location of the person they're interviewing. I think this is a huge clue that the killer lives here. Did I see it when I first read it? Of course not. No. (laughs) No, I agree. And it's right there. It's right there in front of your face. I think that I did actually kind of pick up on this because I always Mm -hmm. knew it was one of the upcots. I was really suspicious of that household. I just thought it was Katya. Trying to think of how many times it's been a woman and how many times it's been a man. So it's man, woman, man, man, and woman, woman, man. That did absolutely nothing. Statistically, there should probably be more male killers. <laughs> yes. In books, you got to throw women in there to throw us off. That's, That's what true. I thought she was going to do with Katya. And she tricked me by not tricking me. The most devious trick of all. How dare she? She's so devious. I know. She's so tricksy. Have you guys ever once guessed who the killer nope. was? I haven't either. I got Raphael a few pages before the reveal. <laughs> okay. Does that well, count? better late than ever. Yes, it counts. (laughs) Let's go back a little bit because I do have more to say about the beginning. I remember feeling nervous, frustrated, wanted to smack Robin upside the head when she said, in spite of her recent admission to herself, 
that she might just be in love with her business partner. I was like, I swear, Robin, I swear. If <laughs> Robin you go back, if you go might. backwards and start saying might, I'm gonna lose my mind. I'm like, <laughs> Robin, girl, it was three chapters ago. We were there. You can't <laughs> all there. That didn't happen. <laughs> we saw it, girl. You're not getting away with this. Come on. <laughs> we were there. I was like, just please don't do this to me. <laughs> Luckily, that's the only time I think that happened. Yeah, I don't think she really can walk uh, it back at this point, even to herself. Yeah. Still, it's a little bit funny. I was like, Robin, she needs a spray bottle right now for that. <laughs> <laughs> I wish that I could reach through this text and spray. Spray bottle, Strike and Robin? Both of them, <laughs> multiple <laughs> times per book. Especially Strike. Stop, Stop it, it. Strike. Stop it. <laughs> oh, yeah. The full line, though, is saying that despite the fact that she knows she's in love with him, she never felt more sympathy for the women who, in Ilsa's words, he pissed off. And she's mad because of the Jago thing. Okay, so we talked about this the last time that Ilsa was saying that he wouldn't piss Robin off. But this is a, one of the things where I think he is currently doing, right, where he's withholding information. Mm-hmm. Because he doesn't tell her all the details about Jago. Which he should, really, because... She's his business partner. Yeah. Yeah. It's also kind of funny to me, though, because Robin sometimes can be just as guilty of holding things back. Yeah, she is a little bit. I think so much of the reason why they hold stuff back is to protect their secret feelings. I think they're going to be more open with each other. I think a lot of that is the thing. But it is sort of a general habit with Strike to play things close to the vest. His default always is to keep silent unless he has to say something. But isn't that Robin, too? It is. It's both of them. I think that both of them, but Strike, he's going to have to actively work to break this habit with Robin and vice versa, because I think it is a habit. And when you get emotions involved, it gets even worse. Yeah. Then they're purposefully holding back for whatever reason. Yeah, we see Robin do it. Yes, we do. I I just think it's something that he might have to, they might have to consciously work to fix sometimes. I think so. It's instinct, I think, in many ways for both of them. It's protective. But they don't have to protect themselves from each other. They need to learn that. I feel bad for poor Robin after just having read this email and not really knowing why oh, she's know. like giving, being given fresh painful fodder for speculation. Mm-hmm. She must be so... Oof. It's uncomfortable feelings, uncomfortable worries about what Strike has been up to with Charlotte. The next paragraph talks about the emotional and physical demands that Strike can't meet. It makes me feel bad for him, even though some of these things are his responsibility, like his health or the choice to date Madeline. But it's funny because the only thing in this that I don't really blame him for, the situation with Jago Ross, is the only thing that I think he's really accepting responsibility for. Yeah. (laughs) It's almost like it's the thing he's willing to accept the blame for because he's the least guilty of it. Mm. You know? Mm. (laughs) Yeah, I see that. I mean, I can counter my own argument because he did face some unpleasant truths in that previous chapter, Mm -hmm. but he hasn't taken action yet with those things like he does with Jago. I just think it's an interesting bit of psychology there. It is. I still want to see him go to therapy and unpack something. Oh, I do too. I know we might not get it, but this is the kind of thing where I'm like, strike. Talk us through your thought process here. Well, I mean, it's understandable, isn't it? It's easy to accept blame for something that we don't really feel guilty for. And it's hard to accept the blame for things that you really do feel like. Yeah, you won't lose any sleep over the former. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Very true. Even though he needs to work on this, I think we can all relate to this. This is one of those things that makes him really relatable for me. Makes me like him, even though I want him to work on these things. Oh, yeah. 
I love him. I'm like, oh, strike, same. <laughs> <laughs> I have a bit of a rabbit hole situation for everyone here. Oh. So because he's so busy, strike has to turn down a date with Madeline where she wanted to go see Fools, I might need you to help me pronounce this. La fille malgarde. My French is rusty. La fille Well, I promise you it's better than what I would have done. So she wants to go see this ballet, which translated from <laughs> French. What? I'm sorry. Can you picture Strike going to <laughs> the ballet? ballet? What planet is Madeline living on? Where We've she's... already talked about the fact what? that she doesn't care what he likes. She wants no. to go see what she, yeah. she wants to go do what she likes. The ballet? I'd like to see him in a ballet. He didn't even like the oh symphony God. with Ellen. He didn't even like the right. symphony. And no one's no. wearing tights and cod pieces in the symphony. <laughs> anyway, so that title translated from French means the wayward daughter or yeah. the poorly guarded girl. Mm-hmm. So, of course, I had to look this up. I can't wait to hear your thoughts on this because I was oh, no. also reading the synopsis for this and I was like, oh, this is good. I feel like I'm going to disappoint you right now because... <laughs> Originally, I was going to tell this story in more detail, but I don't, I don't know how it's that relevant. The particulars of the story, I think the moral of the story is relevant. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But if there's anyone who sees more details, please let me know because I am interested. I looked it up. This ballet was actually on at the Royal Opera House. It was. It started in January of 2015. So it would have been new. So that's probably why Madeline wanted to go see it. I should have known you'd done the research. Of course you have. (laughs) Sorry, continue. But basically it's about two young people who are in love and want to get married, but the young woman's mother wants her to marry this rich guy who she considers to be a better match. Mm -hmm. But ultimately love conquers all and she agrees to allow their marriage. That's pretty much it. I don't find the details to match up very much, but I do love the idea of love conquers all. Being in this chapter where Shrek and Robin are struggling And he doesn't want to go there with Madeline. Yeah, that is sweet. I couldn't find any relevance in the plot either. Yeah, sorry, Ken. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. I was hoping we could do another, like, Tannhäuser level post where it's, like, three parts. If anyone is really into the ballet and sees something I'm not, please let me know. It's very possible. I like it when they spin around. Right. So you're saying Strike and Robin are spinning around in circles. Sure. It's deep pools. This ballet is on YouTube, by the way. Did you watch it? I watched like 10 minutes of it before I realized it was hours long. <laughs> oh, it always is. Yeah. Anyway, can we talk about Jack? Because it's oh, adorable. It's yes. so cute. Yeah. This whole bit about Jack strikes surprised by the connection they formed and he misses his outings with him. They text little jokes and stuff back and forth. I just, I cannot with this unfamiliar glow of vicarious pride. It's incredibly sweet. It is. So he's talking about his school assignment for the Battle of New Chapelle. And this battle comes up twice more in the book. Okay. Later when Robin mm-hmm. sees the finished assignment, pastes mm-hmm. it up on his cupboards, which is adorable. Yeah. But near the end of the book where he's trying to solve the murder, he uses this battle as sort of like a metaphor for mm-hmm. what he's trying to do here. He's trying to cut away the wire and get yeah. past the mm-hmm. outer perimeter. I just think it's really interesting that she laid this little metaphor. She laid the groundwork for it early, came back to it, and then finished up with it. How old is Jack now? He was nine in Lethal White, so he should be right around 12. He's growing up so fast. I wonder if we're going to get to hear anything about as the books continue to go on about Jack in the throes of puberty. That'd oh be fun. my God. Teenage oh, yeah. Jack, his first little girlfriend. That's what I was going to say. Is he going to tell Strike about his first girlfriend or something? That would be cute. This passage rang really true to me mm-hmm. as an aunt of two nephews. 
Yeah. You know, the texting of the jokes, the sharing of the interest, the warm feels when you see that yeah. you influence that young person in a positive way, like what Strike has. It's kind of funny because it especially reminded me of one of my nephews. He was obsessed with World War One for a while. We're talking like when he was eight, nine, ten years old. And one year he wanted to dress up as my husband for Halloween. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, so he's cute. just really cute. a unique kid. Kind of reminds me of Jack in that way. Just kind yeah. of really unique. But what struck me the most in this little passage was a bit about strike never having had the urge to procreate are we thinking he's going to get to the point that he does have the urge maybe when he and robin finally get together i don't think his well i'll put it this way i would not like it if it changed to be honest the things that joe has said about robin coming up against what she wants for herself and for her life Make me think that she doesn't intend for them to have kids. But that line you were just talking about of that feeling of pride that, you know, he had in Jack's work does make you wonder. I wonder if maybe he'll still choose to not have kids, but have it stem from a different place instead of Mm -hmm. it being that he feels like he's a mistake and he doesn't want to perpetuate that it's just i just don't want kids i totally agree with you Ken's. i don't think that they're going to but i would like to see him think i wouldn't be terrible at this i don't think my ovaries could handle strike being a dad uh, i think that <laughs> would be the final straw so for my sake please don't joe i can't i would not be able to handle i'm it. already a little bit worried about you if he holds nick and elsa's baby oh my right. god i think we need to worry about <laughs> you all die jesus i yeah. say you like i haven't made the same joke mm-hmm. honestly Lindsay. yeah come on your face at me right now <laughs> you're like let's fight <laughs> I think we're all doomed when that happens. Yeah, we're all just doomed. So Robin gives him all this paper for the Brotherhood of Ultimate Thule. Do we have anything to say about the article? This white supremacist Viking worship is really accurate. This felt like it could be a real thing to me. The white supremacist obsession is all based on a completely imagined version of history. It doesn't exist the way they think it does. They have this image of the idealized past. And I'm saying idealized with big fat quotation marks because it's only ideal by their white supremacist misogynist values that never existed. There was never some sort of isolated, pure white medieval age in Europe. There were always connections, global connections of trade and the movement of people and goods and culture through medieval Europe, through Constantinople, through Baghdad, through Africa. Um, But the Scandinavian peoples were particularly noted for their extensive trade routes on water. So yeah, there is no sort of pure white European history. That was never actually a thing. And in the Norse cultures, the Scandinavian cultures at this time, women actually did have some rights more than in other places. They were able to own property, to participate in trade, to initiate a divorce. It was actually not as bad as some other places at this time. So what I'm just saying is that this is a really accurate picture of what these white supremacist groups believe and it's all nonsense and they claim to have this basis in history and archaeology and all and that all that is inaccurate it's completely inaccurate they have to know that this is they just don't care they're just using it as a justification for what they want to believe i bet vile patora believes it (laughs) (laughs) sorry I noticed that under the publications part of this article, we see the name Heimdall. 
for the first time. Yeah. This name is also mentioned in chapter 89. So this is Charlie Peach. This is Lord Drek, this Heimdall person. He is in charge of everything. Ah. So he is... Slightly less dumb. A lot less dumb. But I was going to say that this mention of Heimdall being Charlie Peach is actually proof of what Strike and Robin then discussed that the Havening and the Brotherhood of Ultima Thule are actually the same organization, that they're trying to hide themselves by having different names. Yes. So yes, they are right about that. There's also a Twitter conversations between the Brotherhood, Wally Cardew, and Anime. Anything of note? So one of them was Al Gizard, Oliver Peach. He says that the Ink Black Heart is shitty. So I guess Ah. we know he's not actually a fan. Yeah. Another thing I saw was Zoe in there saying she wanted to keep Wally Drek. She's young. I don't think she really knows much or cares much about the politics here. She just loves her cartoon and wants it to stay the same, you know? Yeah, she's just a kid. So there's a brief interview with Edie that Robin attached with women who create. I think what we suspected that the division of labor isn't exactly even is correct from what Edie says. It definitely reinforces that Edie's doing the lion's share, the actual work. The stuff she says about them sharing the artwork, I feel like the more I read this book, the more I wish I could see the ink black heart because if they're each animating different characters, I wonder how they blend together. Like if they have similar styles or if you can tell the difference, did they combine their styles to come up with this cohesive artwork? I'm really curious about this and we'll never know too i know that is an interesting question i mean you know it has to do with the creativity process and i mean you have collaboration on a lot of different projects even books i've always wondered about that because i've never collaborated with someone on something like that and how would you match styles and tone and well maybe we'll see something whenever they start to put together the adaptation I'm excited about this idea of the adaptation that we're going oh, to, get to get to see. Oh, I hope we get to see it. I hope so too. That yeah, would that be amazing. Let's get to the good part though, where Strike thinks about Robin's cool mood. Yeah. He wonders why she could be mad. He goes through the reasons. And then of course he wonders if she's jealous. He's like, I shouldn't pose the question to myself. It could just be vanity, but he's still mm-hmm. posing it to himself. Of course, because he wants it to be true. He does want it to be true, but I think his instinct is telling him still there is something there. I also want to point this out because we talk a lot about how Robin has become so much like Strike or she is like Strike, but this is one of those times where I see Strike being a bit like Robin. Ooh. So many times in the series, she's tried to read his mind and we've seen her dismiss the idea that he could feel anything for her. And he's doing that here. So Mm -hmm. I remember talking early on when we started this book about them kind of doing a role reversal. And I I see this happening here. Well, and to follow up on that, I mean, she even openly says that she doesn't see why Strike should be the only person who kept secrets. So here she goes doing it as well, just like him. You know, all of this is so petty, but perfectly real and understandable. It is real. I love that Strike tries to break the silence because... When they're happy together, silence between them is natural and peaceful. But here it's uncomfortable and he knows that and he doesn't like it. So chapter 33. And in this chapter, Strike and Robin interview the Upcots. And the epigraph for this chapter. By slow degrees, it broke on her slow sense that she too in that Eden of delight was out of place. And like the silly kid, still did most mischief where she meant most love, a thought enough to make a woman mad. And that is from Aurora Lee by Elizabeth Barrett Browning, which, as we know, is one of the more prominent poems throughout this book. There are more than one epigraphs taken from this. I think this epigraph is mostly about Katya. Yeah. In that Eden of Delight speaks to their really nice home with all these accommodations. 
but still did most mischief where she meant most love. We know that she's well-intentioned, but not very effective. And it seems like even in the home, no matter how hard she tries, she can't find peace. Yeah. That final line, a thought enough to make a woman mad, fits very well because I don't know how I fully feel about her. Mm -hmm. I have reservations about her, but in this chapter, I feel for her really deeply. Oh, I yeah. can't imagine what she's going through. The sense of being completely overwhelmed and undersupported. I feel like she's drowning in this chapter. Yeah, I feel for it's her. really sad. There's this line that she was out of place like the silly kid. It makes me think that it's also talking about Flavia, that she also doesn't belong. Mm. I also saw this as her relationship with Josh that Eden of Delight. Mm -hmm. Robin suspects that she kind of had a crush. Oh, yeah. I and, definitely but she, she as a grown woman would certainly realize that was out of place and that she was acting like a silly kid and that, you know, perhaps there was more harm done. I can see that too. Yeah. In the context of the actual poem, this is Marion Earl speaking. Joe saw her sort of like a Zoe parallel. She is here expressing her feeling that though she loved Romney Lee, that she feels she's not worthy of him. And that marrying her would have ultimately caused him harm. I didn't see that it had a direct parallel here. I just wanted to give the context of this quote a little bit. So they get to the Upcots and they hear cello music playing. Mm -hmm. I feel like at this point, there has been enough mentions of composers that if you knew music, maybe this might make you suspicious. Mm. There's also a mention later by Inigo that Gus plays classical music. So I think there are a couple of musical clues in here. Mm -hmm. Robin has an interesting observation about the cello playing. It was so good that she thought it might be a recording. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. It's a clue. Or is it? No, I think it is because Strike thinks that that's what's happening sometimes. So maybe it's that he's that good that you can't tell yeah. if he's playing a recording. Mm -hmm. But the first person that we see is Gus. So we're <gasps> getting our first look dun, at the killer. Dun, dun. And according to the profile they made, he's a really good suspect. He is. I don't quite know why, but him opening the door feels important to me. Maybe he just wanted an excuse to look at them, but he made the choice to go open that door. Mm -hmm. So I feel like he really wanted to scope them out. Yeah. And as they're going upstairs, so Gus goes back to playing and we hear about how he's not at school right now because of his condition. And the paragraph ends with Katja saying that he just wants to go back to college because no one wants to be stuck at home with their parents at that age. And it's really significant because that's exactly what he wants. And it's also, I think, part of the profile that Strike and Robin talked about, that they could be being supported by someone else. Mm -hmm. Big clue here. So with this scene, kind of return to the question about the role of sickness in the book. And of course, the Upcott house is just full of it. Yeah. yeah. Of course, you know, there's bitter Inigo and then there's Anime and his, he's got hives from yeah. angioedema. And I'm, I'm not familiar with urticaria. I looked both of these up and I looked at pictures because I wanted to get an image of what Gus looked like. Mm -hmm. So the first one is just hives, how normal hives would look, but really bad. And then the other one is swelling. So you just imagine hives, mm. but like extreme swelling. One picture I saw had the eyes swollen shut, which is I think what Gus has. Mm. It blows me away that he was doing this to himself on purpose just because of how uncomfortable hives are. I mean, mm. I don't know if you've ever experienced really bad hives. I had an allergic reaction to oh antibiotics gosh. once. That's mm. awful. But it was just miserable. It was miserable. And I just, I cannot believe that he's doing this to himself on purpose. Yeah. And then there's also Flavia, you know, who's mm -hmm. home from school because of illness. Yet another reason for her father to be 
abusively rude to her. I mean, he's awful. just, oh my God, yeah. he's awful. And there's also Katja who mentions her struggle with depression, mm-hmm. which she said she was struggling with. I think she's probably still struggling with it. Absolutely. It's a very sick family. Should this have been a pointer to the location of Anime? Because Anime yeah. is a societal sickness. This cluster of sick people, yeah. sick relationships, sick dynamics in many ways. Yeah. I feel like we should have zoned right in on this. I think you're right. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a really good point. Yeah. I also can't help but notice how much information we're getting about their house. Yeah. So mm-hmm. the layout is very That's going to come in handy, isn't it? Yeah, we learned that it's <laughs> soundproof. There's a mention of that bust that Robin throws out the window at the end, all in the yes. description of the mm-hmm. home. I agree. It felt so weird to me that Katra just launches into this monologue about how they remodeled the house. But yeah, it's there for a purpose. But it also gives us sort of an insight into the kind of accommodations, the kind of changes that you can make to an environment to deal with disabilities, right? I was thinking that too, because I mean, we have Strike who won't even get his elevator fixed. Yeah. And then you have all of these accommodations. I wonder if maybe one day they'll remember this and say, hey, hey, this is a thing we can do. Yeah. Fix the elevator for God's sake, straight. <laughs> it also it felt like kind of a hint to me that this household revolves around Inigo's needs, Inigo's moods, Inigo's whims, not even necessarily because he's sick or because, because of his disability. Because yeah, he's I, an abusive asshole. Yeah. And that's yeah. how they revolve around the emotions the mood, the desires of the abuser. And we all know that even if he weren't sick, he would be that way to one extent or another. That's just who he is. Absolutely, 100%. Here's something I'm curious about because Robin thinks about how expensive all these accommodations must have been. Mm-hmm. And she thinks that Koch's crafting supply business must be doing well. And I'm mm-hmm. curious about this because Katja says that she's the sole breadwinner. And then you get Inigo's awful comments about her spreadsheet. I don't know. I guess I'm curious what the truth is. Is she doing really well? She must be. I think she is. Inigo sounds exactly like Matthew. With that Mm -hmm. whole any fool can read a spreadsheet. That Mm. sounds exactly like something that Matthew has said in the past. Well, that may be part of his an attack on his Mm -hmm. ego. Yeah, definitely. The man, he can't support the family. But then he comes in. What an entrance. I thought I disliked Roy Phipps. Yeah, we thought. I would take 10 of him before taking (laughs) one of Inigo. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, this man is so terrible that I, when I read the ending, I was like, oh no, someone's dead. Oh, never mind. Oh, it's like, (laughs) yeah. Yay. I mean, oh, okay. I'm counting down the pages till this guy bites it. He's the worst. He's He's the worst. And he has dandruff. Oh, Which no. is something <laughs> JK Rowling is really she mentions dandruff and BO fairly often when she introduces unlikable characters. Like Roy Carver had dandruff. I can't think of anybody, but it just seems Doesn't Chisel? Like, I think Chisel. Yeah, does. I feel like yes, Chisel had dandruff. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I knew there had to be at least one other character. So anyway, you're just getting those cues right away. That, oh. <laughs> it's a sign of evilness is not moisturizing your scalp. Apparently. <laughs> Not having a healthy scalp. It's evil. (laughs) So do you have any thoughts on the significance of the Queen song playing? The show must go on. I think there's definitely a connection to Queen for later on in the book. Obviously, the lyrics reflect the mood and the scene. Outside the dawn is breaking, but inside in the dark, I'm aching to be free. And then after one of Inigo's rants, I'm going slightly mad. I'm going slightly mad. 
And then yeah. during a quote, short, nasty silence, Robin misses Freddie Mercury. And then of course the chapter ends up with music that reflects the mood of the room. Only this time it's Gus's cello. But anyway, mm -hmm. I also looked up The Show Must Go On on Wikipedia. And apparently the song is about Freddie Mercury's illness, you know, when he was wow. dying, but he was determined to record this song and the whole attitude was of him going on regardless of being terminally ill, not letting that hold him back. So here's another instance where someone's illness doesn't hold them back, but instead mm -hmm. inspires them and propels them to creativity and success. I'm really glad that you looked that up. It's so amazingly, you know, apropos. Yeah, it is. I'm just thinking this is another thing that is tying one of Gus's alt accounts to this home because of a Queen song. You know? Yeah. 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 Another little clue is Inigo says acta non verba. So we know that anime uses Latin occasionally. So it's another tie to this family. It is. And another moment of Inigo being an asshole to his wife. She's like, I'll do the accounts. He's like, actions, not words. Fuck you. Okay. Sorry. I'm good. Especially <laughs> if Robin is right that she is doing well. Right? She's just oh, awful. Awful in Latin <laughs> and English. Awful in two languages. Every That's language. funny because Strike is sexy in two languages. <laughs> you know, and you think Latin's sexy because of how Strike uses it. And then Inigo, right. you know, rolls up in here. And you're like, no, that's not sexy. Doesn't work when he does it. Does yeah. not work for you, Inigo. Inigo's whole thing in the beginning of this chapter, it's almost funny because he thinks he's so clever. He's crafted yeah. this whole entry plans on putting Kacha down in front of them <laughs> pretends to not remember that they're gonna be there but later mentions Rofi. Strike knows that it's all an act I just find it really pathetic and also really satisfying that Strike nails Indigo so perfectly like he yeah. knows exactly who this man is and I just really like when Strike can read people so clearly like this me too do you ever wonder how he would read you if they had to interview you oh my god the <laughs> thought of just hearing myself described as the interviewee in one of mm. these books is the level of anxiety, the <laughs> level of cringe is off the charts. I, oh, 100%. I would hate to see how they'd see me. Absolutely yeah. not. Absolutely not. I would desperately want Robin to like me, but I don't know. I know I would want Robin to like me. Mm -hmm. I don't know if she'd like me. I would me. try too and hard. I'd be like, <laughs> I too would be trying too hard. I'd be trying to play it cool, but they could obviously see that I'm trying to play it cool. And then I'd probably <laughs> say something stupid because I'm so anxious about playing mm -hmm. it cool. Yeah. And then I might start doing the up talk just out of <laughs> oh, nerves. No. And oh, then God. I'm really screwed. And then after that, we get this line from Strike. You were talking about him reading an ego really well. Strike says that he sensed a thwarted, even embittered will to power. I love that line because that's the abuser right there. Inigo has clearly passed on this need for power and control to his son, first of all. And we see throughout this chapter, his nasty, manipulative abuse of his wife. He doesn't need to be able to physically overpower the other people in this household to control them and hold power over them. He is still exerting a lot of power, even though he feels thwarted in all the power he wants. I just think that this line is a really succinct and well-stated summation of Inigo's character, and it shows where the abuse comes from. The want for power, the want for control, and in Inigo's case... That want has been thwarted because he doesn't have the physical control, so he's exerting it however he can 
through the awful things yeah. he says to his wife, his daughter, his son. I don't know if we've made it obvious or not, but we don't like him. What is the opposite of a fan club? You know what he is? You know how in Harry Potter, Voldemort is the villain. So Gus is the villain, but you hate Umbridge more. Yeah. 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 Inigo mm-hmm. is the Umbridge to yeah. Gus's Voldemort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Next, I want to apologize to all accountants listening. <laughs> But this made me laugh when Strike asks Indigo if he's an accountant. We've joked about this a lot. Not, there's nothing real, but it just seems like an ongoing joke with accountants in these books. So there's Matthew. John Bristow was called an accountant. No, that's by right. And Kiara. It's so funny. Strike and Robin's accountant seems a bit, you know. Uptight. Uptight. Like he yeah. shit staples. <laughs> And it's also just funny that Inigo is so offended by the very thought of being an accountant. <laughs> I don't know. I just thought this was funny. It's another it's one for the funny. list of accountant jokes. And, and I love that he knew that Inigo was going to say no, but it's just yeah. like just yeah. using it to draw him out. Strike yeah. kind of meant it to be insulting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Strike has opinions about accountants now. Maybe one day we'll meet a really cool accountant in the books. Huh. No well, one's holding their breath for that. Not, I'm not holding my <laughs> breath for that. No. I just thought that was funny. Sorry to mm. the accountants. It I know there's funny. one accountant who listens who's like, hey. <laughs> so next, I already, I mean, we have already discussed how much we don't like him. But when Flavia yeah. comes in, Ooh. this is when I knew I hated him. Yeah. There's just never an excuse to speak to a child like that. And the fact no. that he's so comfortable doing this, not only in front of strangers, but in front of detectives. Right. It tells me how much worse it has to be when no one is around. Yeah, yeah. absolutely agreed. It's horrifying the way he yeah. treats well, everyone in this, but mm-hmm. Flavia in particular, wow. Yeah, and jumping a little forward, he calls her their problem child. <laughs> Besides it being awful wow. and not true, do you think this is kind of an ironic clue that it's actually the opposite? Yeah, <laughs> he's he's going to have a much bigger problem He's got a much bigger problem. Uh, he's got a much, much bigger problem. Yeah. What an asshole. What a sexist prick. You know, he calls her a problem child because she's she's a female. Yeah, I don't know if that's it. I think that no. her birth, he says that she was born around the time he was diagnosed. I think he oh. I think he resents how hard that must have been to have a newborn and a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. I think his life had changed and he wanted it to be about him. And it can't, it can't be yeah. about you when there's a newborn. I think he really resents her and maybe the attention that she took away from him. Yeah. For a second, though, when he talks about viruses and how he has to be careful, <laughs> there was a moment where I was like, I wonder how he did during COVID. Oh, wait. <laughs> yeah. He never lived to see Oh, wait. <laughs> At this point, Katja had been gone getting drinks. And when she comes back, Gus helped her open the door. Mm. I noticed that it says he tried to duck out of sight. Ooh. So at first I think I thought he was just trying to avoid his father, but mm-hmm. he might not want Strike and Robin to get more familiar with his face. You know, he's already yeah. seen them one time. I think he's trying to sneak, sneak Limit on their out of exposure. There. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gus opening the downstairs door, this door. I thought it was a sneaky way for the reader to think that he's kind of helpful. Yeah. Like yeah. he's opening the door for his mom. He's got to be an okay kid when actually like you said he probably just wants to see the detectives doesn't want them to see him as much but inigo does call him back and asks if he's been practicing this is interesting to me because robin uses the fact that gus practices so much and is so accomplished to dismiss the theory that he's anime but i wonder just how much of strike's theory that he's playing records is true i wonder how much he's doing it and how much he's not 
he shows his callous fingertips and the grooves in them. But mm-hmm. honestly, I wouldn't put it past Gus to, I mean, I don't even know if this is possible, but press his fingertips into the strings before going into the room. It's probably possible. Yeah, if you did it for long enough, yeah, you could. I actually play cello. Oh. So, yes, I think if you press it down there for long enough and hard enough, Mm-hmm. that yeah you could make some indentations on your fingers he has to be doing both right so i think he must yeah. be practicing just enough to get by but there has to be some sort of mix there i think so this is when kacha asks gus if he's heard from his girlfriend darcy and i thought that Yikes. this was weird when i yeah. read this because i would not choose this moment with strangers in the house to ask my child a personal question that i thought i already knew the answer to right it is weird it's telling me that this is something to keep an eye on. I'm kind of frustrated that I didn't see it because I did think it was so weird. Mm-hmm. I searched Darcy's name in the ebook, and the next time she comes up is in chapter 70, where Gus's sock puppet account, Jay Baldwin, says on Reddit, lying bitch Darcy Olivia Barrett made false sexual assault accusations against boyfriend. Mm. It's setting up the clue for chapter 70, if you would, rem- if you had remembered the name Darcy. Which I would have zero hope of doing. No one's remembering 40 chapters later, but it is, it's setting it up here, right? We get the name. It is. Inigo's reaction was also weird to me. He does this weird, aggressive, angry sort of projection when he says, she's a bloody waste of time if she can't stick by a man when he's sick, isn't she? It felt mm-hmm. like he was attacking Katya somehow there. Even though she has stuck by him. I think he considers any sign of her having a life or thoughts or wishes yeah. outside of his control as betrayal and not sticking by him. Or a way to guilt her into staying with him. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Making sure she doesn't leave. So Katya gives Strike and Robin the list that she made of all of Josh and Edie's friends. And I was kind of impressed by this. I think it gives the impression that she really cares and she genuinely wants to help. I agree. I think she does mm-hmm. care. Yeah, the thing that stands out to me is that she notes people associated with the friends. So it's not just Mm -hmm. their friends, but also their friends, roommates or girlfriends. And I Mm -hmm. think it's telling us to look at those things because that's exactly what it is. But it's funny because I doubt she included her own family in that list. Yeah. At this point, I was thinking that it was suspicious that she was being so helpful and coming up with such a (laughs) a useful list. I was like, hmm, I don't trust you because you appear to be competent and helpful. And that can't be true. So what are you hiding, lady? Like Janice. (laughs) Yeah, Mm. she's like a Janice. And I'm like, hmm. Can we talk about Robin's reaction to Katya looking pleased that Strike praised her notes, though? (laughs) Hilarious. I think it's cute and funny. Oh, bless you, Robin. I think this praise was well-deserved. I do. I think this was a helpful thing that she did. It was. The nerve of Robin calling her pathetic. Who was it who opened up like a water blossom? <laughs> yeah, you know who Robin. it was, Robin. Yeah, I think she might be projecting a little. <laughs> yeah, we saw that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we I definitely there. think it's possible that Katja is craving kindness and recognition, but I wouldn't call it pathetic like Robin does. I think she's a touch jealous here. Just a little. <laughs> <laughs> He's praising someone else's punctuation? <laughs> wow. <Excuse>? First Madeline, <laughs> now this. How dare he? (laughs) Who does he think he is? It's funny because she also doesn't like this in Heather earlier on. Yeah. But here it's even funnier because now she knows that she's in love with him and she's like, pathetic. Oh, that is funny. Yeah. Okay. So here's something that I'm interested to know if you guys have any thoughts. And this is about Indigo's response to Robin's offer of help. His hand is shaking so badly that he's spilling his tea. And Robin is the first person that he doesn't really snap at. 
I mean, not that he snaps at Strike, but he's almost kind to Robin. And I'm interested in why, although I think I know why, because, you know, Robin's <laughs> She's very good cute. looking. Yeah. Yeah. But there's just such a contrast to the last chapter where Robin doesn't offer any comment or help to Strike, even though she knows he's in pain. But she offers it to this man who's just been really abusive in front of her. And he accepts it graciously. And Strike and Indigo are the exact opposites, right? Because while Strike mm-hmm. is a good man, he gets angry when Robin fusses quote unquote um and here we see the exact opposite i don't know what i'm trying to say you note that they are opposite it's it is their characters that shape how they react to offers of help because we know strike values being independent he's very proud he's a good man who doesn't want to be dependent on people whereas inigo wants the fussing because he wants everyone else's world to revolve around him He feels like he's the most important person in every room. And of course, this gorgeous young woman should be helping me be with my tea. That's everyone else's role to be accessories to my life. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. But it is just interesting how it's highlighted again, Mm -hmm. contrasting strike. The difference in accepting help. Yeah. When normally accepting help is a good thing, but here their characters (laughs) drive them to And it's flipped, turned upside down. (laughs) Yeah. So they finally get to asking some questions. And the first one Strike asks is who Josh thought Anime was. And his suspect was Bram. I never suspected Bram because as it's pointed out, he would have been seven or eight at the time. Yeah. Having a seven-year-old boy myself, this is not a thing (laughs) that was going to happen. Trust me. (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, the age didn't quite sync up there, but... You know, troubled, creepy, disturbing young male person is pretty close. I think the biggest thing here that's mentioned is Bram Mm -hmm. drilling the hole in the wall to spy on Josh and Edie. I think it's a clue that spying is happening, just not in the way that they suspected. There's also a part towards the end where Katya says that she was glad Josh felt that he could come over to her house and tell her things in confidence. Oof. Lots of clues about listening in or spying. Mm-hmm. You know what? They talk about this later. And I just have to say this part really upsets me for Edie that Josh talked her out of telling Nils and Miriam about the spy hole. Yeah. And that Josh didn't want to leave because Josh felt safe there. What about how Edie feels? Yeah. Do you think she feels safe there? Yeah. What Bram did is such a violation. It's Norman Bates level shit. Yeah. For someone to make her feel like she can't confront it or that she's overreacting. It's so upsetting to me. Yeah, it is. It's so violating to watch someone in their most intimate space, their bedroom, you know, and Mm -hmm. to make her feel like it's wrong to call that out. I hated this for her. I agree with you 100%. I can't bring myself to think that the suspicion that Bram is enemy is as idiotic as Inigo is implying because Bram is a total predator in the making. He 100% is. And he's definitely guilty of some things like setting fire or mm-hmm. drilling the hole. And the theory that Morehouse is the one coding the game is true. It's true. So not that dumb a theory. Well, it's just that he would have been seven at right. the time. It's just not possible. To me, it just kind of reinforced my suspicion of Nils through the entire book. Yeah. You had your Katia and I had Nils. The fact that Braum has turned yeah. out like he has points to a really creepy dad. But yeah, Inigo's vehemence, his fury, shooting down every single aspect of this theory. You know what? I think that Inigo would insult his wife for thinking that the earth was round if he had nothing yeah. else to attack her for, right? He hates Katya. His contempt for her is so clear. He would shoot down literally anything that she said was a possibility. Yeah, I agree. 
Yeah, I do too. I hate this guy. There's also this mention of how Anime whispered that he'll take care of things from now on to Josh after he stabbed him. I wonder mm-hmm. if Gus is nervous about this since he lived. I bet he is. It also makes me wonder how often Gus and Josh spoke or if they never spoke. Because mm-hmm. even if someone whispered, like if you whispered to me, I would still know it was your voice. Would you know it was me? I think so. Oh, you can see me right now. Never mind. It implies to me that maybe they've never really talked. Yeah, well, I can I can picture Gus never having really spoken much in Josh's no. presence, right? Yeah. Of course, it might be hard to recognize a voice when you're, like, being stabbed. That's true. <laughs> but I also wonder how much he wanted them to know who he was. Mm. I wonder if he said anything to Edie. I also really, really am curious about what he said to Morehouse before he killed him. Oh, why did you have to remind I'm me? Sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. I think there's no way that he did not tell him that he was paper white before. Yeah. Heartbreaking. Yeah. I think he wanted that moment. Sorry. That's Thanks, awful. Lindsay. <laughs> so back to your uh-huh. favorite person. Yasmin is mentioned. And we learned Ooh. that after she gave Josh the dossier that he went to the Epcot's house that night. This is interesting because I went back and looked at the chat chapter from the day of the murder. So it's chapter nine. And learning this, you realize that Anime or Gus might have already known that the meeting was happening because Josh showed Katya the dossier that morning. Mm -hmm. Possibly as the conversation was happening in the game, he's also at home learning this, you know? Yeah. The layers. The reread of this book is so rewarding when you figure out what was going on here. I know. I don't know how she makes all of these threads fit together so perfectly it's amazing i can barely wrap my mind around understanding them i know (laughs) does she write them do we know how gus's listening devices work does he have to retrieve them and then listen or can he listen live while it's recording i have to imagine that it streams i feel like listening live would be so much more beneficial to him Mm -hmm. because he could put the cello record on and put headphones in and listen to what's happening i've never tried to shop for listening devices i don't know the common features no oddly enough i've never felt the need to surveil um any of my loved ones interesting (laughs) weird but okay maybe if there could be a way you could connect to it with headphones by like bluetooth or something that way you wouldn't have to be like right there yeah i bet you could so strike is asking a lot of questions about the phone call between josh and Edie, where each of them were when they took the call he's trying to deduce who could have overheard that call and the fact that he's asking all these questions tells us again that someone was listening to this plan it's just not where they expected Mm -hmm. but there's also this line but it was as though Anime was literally listening in on Josh and Edie's conversations. He knew things so quickly. Mm-hmm. If Gus is listening in right now, he's so excited. <laughs> yeah. He has this evil smile on his face, you know? Yeah, that's going to be good for his ego. This line from an ego, when Katra leaves the room, he says to Robin and Strike, I know what you're thinking and how they must be thinking. She's a middle-aged woman mixing herself up with kids, thinking she's helping them, feeling important, free advice, ego boost. And the thing is, I mean, no one was really thinking that like that in ego. The fact that he assumed that these strangers loathed his wife and Mm -hmm. were as contemptuous of her as he is. He assumed everyone around her sees her the same way he does. He sees her through this this lens of cruelty and hatred and just 
It made me so sad for her that he would say this to these two strangers once she left the room. This was one of the more hurtful things that he does. I mean, all of it. But talking about his wife behind her back like this. Well, and people who do that sort of thing, it's always interesting to me because it always makes you look like the asshole. I mean, you are an asshole for doing it. But do you think you're going to pull people over? Yeah, yeah, Katya is right. an idiot. No, they're going to think, never man, works. you're a jerk for talking about yeah. your wife that way. Yeah, it so, never works. It he never looks does. like the asshole. But he yeah. just genuinely thinks that everyone must see her it's as narcissism mm-hmm. it's it is the narcissism yeah there's something i feel is weird that katya says next uh, and it mm-hmm. has to do with her relationship with josh so this is when they're talking about bram's gross spy hole and that josh didn't want to move out with Edie. and here's the reasons that she gives so she says northgrove felt like a safe place for him he was surrounded by friends i was still going there for my art classes and it just struck me as so weird because i was like what does her going to art classes have to do with him not moving out? Yeah. It implies that she believes her being there was part of his reason that he stayed. It does seem to imply that. It might that. be. It might not be. I think it's speaking towards their relationship a little bit. It's a weird thing to say. It is weird. I think it might speak to her desire to be important to him Mm -hmm. she wants to believe that she is really important to him i don't think she realizes how telling that was i agree and this is also just a couple paragraphs later where robin notes that when katya mentions feeling maternal towards him she notices her blush and feels like she caught her in her underwear yeah i don't think they were entirely <laughs> maternal feelings there and that's kind of no, of course mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. no absolutely not the next question they have for katya is about the pen of justice <sighs> we can see that inigo is defensive of yeah mm-hmm. right away yeah and what a hypocrite though for criticizing katya for getting involved with the younger crowd and he's doing the exact same thing like there Honestly. are parallels between Inigo and Kea and yeah. Josh and Katya, you know, it's they've got to be Huge the same parallels. age in their early 20s. What is she doing that's different from what he's doing? Good question. He is projecting his own thing all over Katya. And I mean, yeah, there is something off about her relationship uh, with definitely. Josh. Yes. But he is also lashing out and projecting everything that he has going on the cheater is always going to accuse the other person of cheating right i don't, well i don't know if he was ever no. involved with kia no. like that no but it's that kind of thing right the person doing the wrong thing they're gonna accuse the other person of doing it mm-hmm. like it's that kind of projection even though katya was sort of it's my point is that they're both guilty of this yeah and he gets so furious. And you know what? I think that he's totally aware of Katja's feelings for Josh. It just adds to his contempt. Yeah, because he makes a comment about her being jealous of Kia. And she's really flustered by this. Yeah. There's also a little bit where Indigo says, from what I've heard, Blay treated that young Kia person extremely badly. And I was like, oh, really? Where did mm-hmm. you hear that from, sir? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who who told you that? We're coming to the end here, but we get another visit from Flavia about wanting to go see the puppies. I think this is just a setup for the next chapter to tell yeah. us that Gus is afraid of dogs. Mm-hmm. The way he yells at her is, you are infectious. Like he's talking to a wild animal. Seriously, that is fucked. There's only so many ways that we can point out how atrocious this man is how (laughs) awful he is to everyone around him and striking robin sitting there witnessing this 
there must be that sort of awkward feeling you get. Like, you oh, know yeah. that episode, Lindsay, of the dinner party episode of The Office? I do. It's that same feeling of sitting there watching, watching Michael, watching fight. him be like, I am the devil. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of same witnessing someone's... It's, it's much worse, though, when it's done towards children. Yes, it is much, much worse. I picture Strike and Robin just giving each other the jim's camera face like wow yeah but gus comes in at the end too and interrupts Mm -hmm. with a message from the doctors is there anything what was he trying to interrupt here is he listening in and realize i need to interrupt something or are we just getting a third look at him i don't know i think it's just a third look at him maybe it was trying to add to the sort of chaos at the end of the scene like the kids coming in one after the other it's making everything feel a bit overwhelming and we feel catches yeah there's like a moment where she sighs and says that's mm-hmm. fine and i just yeah i feel that so deeply right now oh <laughs> the yeah. overwhelming kind of thing yeah that yeah. was i just felt that for her because they were pretty much done i mean i thought it would be really cool if he was interrupting something but you know maybe i'm trying to find something that's not there yeah I the think worm he's... is not a penis Lindsay. <laughs> <laughs> It does add to the sort of the atmosphere inside the house. It does. The, the conflicts, tension. the tension, the demands. And it's also having to do with sickness. He has to go to the doctors. Mm-hmm. Can't mm-hmm. drive himself. It's another thing that's on Koch's shoulders. We heard in Robin's assessment that she thought Anomi was a carer who had to drive someone to the hospital. So that could have been a hint. Well, maybe someone needs to drive Gus to the hospital. That's also why I thought it was Katya. <laughs> it's just an awful chapter to read. I feel for Katya. I feel for Flavia, most of all. Flavia? Flavia? I'm never going to get that right. Flavia? I wish that she would come up with some pretty humdrum names. Because, we, you know, is it Kia or Kea? Is it Flavia we don't know. or Flavia? Flavia? Is it Inigo or Inigo? <laughs> It's like, come on, let's get a bob. No, she loves it. Oh, I know she does. And it wouldn't be rolling without, you know. Of course. I just. Speaking of that, I mean, I was looking up all these characters' names, trying to see if there was, you know, anything I could find. Because, you know, she does that. And I was also curious if Gus is short for anything. Augustus? Gustavo? Augustus came up. Gustavo. Augustus makes me think the Roman emperor, mm-hmm. which makes me think it fits with the theme of Flavia. As Flavia is a, a Roman name as well, isn't she? Isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The Flavian dynasty. That's why I'm thinking Julia Flav- Flavia or Flavia Julia. She was the daughter of the Roman emperor. So I feel like Augustus is likely. Flavia is an ancient Roman name meaning blonde from the ah. Latin word Flavus or Flavus. Yeah, feminine form of the Roman name Flavius, which is from Latin meaning yellow or golden. Mm-hmm. She's the golden child, not the problem child. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. That's what it is. That's why she chose that name. I was going to mention it in the next episode because we talked to her for a little bit. But there's actually a Flavia Deleuze series, which is about an 11-year-old detective. Oh, And I just thought that was really Aww. cute. I don't know if she did that on purpose, but if she did, that's cute. I don't cute. put anything past her, yeah. That is really cute. I like that. That's a happier note to end on. It is. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You didn't get many. Yeah, no, that was a bit of a depressing chapter. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah. Very negative. <laughs> Sorry for having you on such a negative chapter, but thanks for coming <laughs> on. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm happy to be here for the negative as well as the positive. Yeah. Thank you for helping us cope. What are we doing in our next episode, Pence? 
We are going to be doing chapters 34 through 37 of part two. And as far as what happens in those chapters, a couple of things of note are Robin's first foray into Drex game and then Strike's oh, interview yes. with Ormond. I love Robin getting into the game. And she talks to Anime for the first time. So that's exciting. That'll be us finishing part two and moving on to part three. Yay. That is how numbers work. <laughs> Yes. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy what you've heard, don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr at the SE Files Pod. You can also contact us on our website at thesefilespod.com or email us directly at sefilespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much again for listening, and we hope to catch you next time for another episode of the Strike and Ellicott Files.